0: Okay, welcome to, uh, unit testing. Quickly designing and writing things that work. So, what, which is the culture where you work? I coded up this feature you wanted. I think it works, but I'm not sure. Just send it over to QA and start working on the next thing. We'll deal with the issue, that, any issues that they find later. Or, I coded up that feature you wanted, but I still need to add a few more tests to make sure it's solid. Great, when do you think you'll be done? The first relies on a testing and maintenance cycle to handle issues later. The second assumes that it's as solid as possible before you stop working on it. Some notes, uh, bugs found while the developer is still in the mindset of that feature are much faster to fix uh, than ones found later. The developer is always better off continuing to develop from a solid foundation. In other words, it's best not to develop against buggy code. So the general problem is every programmer knows they should write tests for their code. Few do. The universal response to why not is I'm in too much of a hurry. This quickly becomes a vicious cycle. The more pressure you feel, the fewer tests you write. The fewer tests you write, the less productive you are and the less stable your code becomes. The less productive and accurate you are, the more pressure you feel. It's a nice little cycle. For a bunch of these early slides, I'm going to you know rely heavily on one of the virtues of a programmer, laziness. I'm going to be quoting a lot of people. Uh, unit testing is about going faster. Unit testing is about delivering working software quickly. It means you need to be able to write the code quickly, get it to work, avoid and fix defects, and be able to change and maintain the code in future. The fastest way to deliver working software is to write correct code straight off in one sitting to a known set of requirements. Most programmers can't write code that's perfect, and most customers change their minds about features they want. This is a good thing. We're embracing change. Your response as a programmer to the reality of imperfect code is to write unit tests to check your work. (coughs) When to write tests. Martin Fowler makes this easy for you. He says, whenever you're tempted to type something into a print statement or a debugger expression, write it as a test instead. Here are a couple of times that you'll receive a reasonable return on your testing investment. During development. When you need to add new functionality to the system, write the tests first. Then you will be uh, done developing when the test runs. I'll actually spend a significant part of this talk talking about exactly that. Uh, Writing tests as part of the development process, not after, as part of the process. And during debugging, when someone discovers a defect in your code, first write a test that will succeed if the code is working then debug until the test succeeds. This is a great technique because it means you will never see the bug again. Because all of us that have developed for any period of time know that we will get the same bug over and over again as the the software ages. You do this, you'll never see it again. Or if you see it again, you know exactly what broke when you go fix it. So what is a test? (laughs) At the highest level, a test is a requirement. As every trained project manager knows, a project requirement must be, quote, clear and testable. (laughs) Automatic tests are just automatic requirement checks. There are tools like fitness and Mercury's Quality Center that handle this from the high level, functional and acceptance tests. This presentation will focus on the lower level unit tests. Just as a bit of a quick overview, there are three basic forms of tests. There are acceptance tests, which are, you know, essentially, you know, when the customer says, okay, yes, this does what I want it to do. It's a bit more of the, you know, fuzzy kind of testing, you know, you get the customer to accept that this is what they want. There's functional tests, which is what you usually think of from like a requirements document, that this has to do what it needs to do kind of thing. It's a bit more high level. You know, this needs to save or whatever. And then there's unit tests, which tend to focus more on the API. It's much more of the programmer developer level. Uh, Functional and acceptance tests are usually the kind of thing that your QA department does, if you have a QA department. Or as a developer, you tend to do, but it's more of a QA function even as a developer. Probably the easiest way to think of what a good unit test is, is that it's something that verifies a piece of functionality's contract. Uh, uh, specifically for anybody that's familiar with uh, the practice of uh, design by contract. You know, so you're talking about preconditions, post-conditions, invariants, you know, like it talks about that up there with uh, uh, object buffers been initialized. This method will never return null. The list will always be greater, that size will always be greater than or equal to zero. Yeah What makes a good unit test? <coughs> Part one. Of course, if anybody has questions, like we were talking about before, please just you know throw it out. There's a lot of material here though. it's like 70 slides, so I'm just kind of running through it. but if anybody has any questions. What makes a good unit test? <laughs> uh, it sufficiently tests the contract. It doesn't need to be complete, just sufficient. So if it's complex code, then have lots of tests. Just, you know, duh. If it's a simple accessor, then you don't need a test. You don't need a test for the getter on your beans property. Just stupid. <laughs> uh, most things are in between. You know, for most of the functions that you write, particularly public functions, you usually have like one test, two tests, unless, of course, it's something complicated. Uh, it must run quickly. Part of the point is to make sure that you're able to run them regularly so speed plays into that. It's much easier to fix a bug that you introduced five minutes ago than one that you did five weeks ago. Yeah, because you know what you just did. Um, we'll talk a lot more about it, the need for it to run quickly later. Uh, and tests are independent. If you have dependencies between tests or have to do tons of setup, then it's a pain to write tests and to run them. Loosely coupled functionality enables independent tests. Right? Loosely coupled, highly cohesive code. <laughs> you know, it's computer science 101. Right? Loosely coupled, highly cohesive code. <laughs> It's hard to do. It's very, very hard to do. You do this, though, and it very much encourages you to do so. Because if you're writing tests for everything that you write, it's much easier to write tests for things that are highly cohesive, loosely coupled, than for things that are tightly coupled and, uh, low cohesion. And so, being lazy, we tend to go the easier route. And therefore, we tend to write good code. (laughs) Just because we're lazy. So, you know, one of the reasons why laziness is a virtue for a programmer. Run the tests regularly. Ideally, use something like Cruise Control to run the complete test suite uh, automatically after you check code in. One of the seriously cool benefits of having the automated tests is that it gives you automatic regression testing. (laughs) Again, that means you know, for most of the stuff that you're running, especially on a large project, uh, like the project that I'm uh, working on right now where we've got many thousands of classes, tens of thousands of classes, you know, running the entire suite of of tests can take several minutes. And uh, during my regular development cycle, I don't want to wait several minutes between my, you know, write something test, write something test cycle. So I usually run just the tests that I'm concerned with. However, of course... You have interactions between things, so you want to make sure that you just didn't break something somewhere else. <laughs> so what uh, something like Cruise Control or Damage, uh, uh, damage Control or Antil, or there's lots of things out there that do the same kind of thing, is a watch your source code control system. After you check something in, it automatically does a build. It runs all of your tests and gives you a report afterwards saying whether or not you broke something. <laughs> so it makes it really easy to know... Okay, this code that I checked in an hour ago, it broke this other system. Okay, well, I know what I did an hour ago, so it's really easy for me to figure out what the heck just happened. Uh, you can be fearless when you need to make changes because you don't have to worry about what you might have, that you might have broken something. So if you need to refactor something, if you need to change the architecture, whatever... You're free to do so because if you've ever tried to do that without lots of tests to back you up, you know, ooh, dang, I just broke that. (laughs) Uh, with tests to back you up, you know that if you, if you, you know, if you're very careful along the way and everything, the moment you break something, you know. And that way it makes it much, much easier rather than, oh crap, you know, I broke something, you know, two weeks ago. Writing good tests. If you do all the stuff that you're supposed to do anyway, loose coupling, high cohesion, et cetera, writing tests is really easy. Seriously. Loosely coupled and highly cohesive software is much easier to test than tightly coupled systems or ones where it's hard to tell what something is really for, low cohesion. There's a lot of patterns for making that easier, like inversion of control, strategies, etc. If you use something, you know, a lot of the modern frameworks like Spring and the like that uh, do inversion of control, this, these kinds of patterns just fall out naturally because, again, it's just the easiest way to do it. <laughs> Writing the test before you write the code guarantees that your code is testable because, obviously, you wrote the test before you wrote the code, so you're just going to be testable. With very few exceptions, code that is hard to test is a huge flag that design is bad, i.e., tightly coupled and low cohesion. Because about the only time that you have a hard time testing something is when it's highly coupled with low cohesion. So, an example of how to think of tests. Here's a typical, you know, kind of function or requirement statement for, you know, if I need a particular you know function and I need somebody else to write it for me this is what I'd ask of them you know this is a essentially function requirement the required functionality for a piece of for a particular service get versions for product ID is the ability to get a list of all versions for a given product ID if there's no product for that ID then an exception is thrown <coughs> if there's no versions for a valid product ID then an empty list is returned you know, functional specification. <coughs> the tests that are needed, starting from the easiest to the hardest, if there's no product for that ID, then an exception is thrown. It's a precondition. If there's no versions for a valid product ID, then an empty list is returned. Postcondition. If there are versions for a product ID, then a non-empty list of all the versions is returned. Postcondition. Here's Ruby. I know this is a jug, but <coughs> uh, uh, there's those tests implemented in Ruby, you know test invalid product, where I get the versions, uh, passing in a known invalid ID, and I th- and assert false because it should not have gotten to that point. It should have thrown in an exception. you know it should have thrown an exception, but got, and I say what I got <coughs> Uh test no version for product and I get it for a known product uh, that or a product ID that I know there are no versions. I just uh, assert that the length is equal to zero. Got version back. Uh, and the test list of versions for product, you know, same kind of thing. I know this one has versions, etc. Really basic. One of the points to be made here. And we'll see it when we talk about J-units and the rest, <coughs> is that your unit tests should only, <coughs> uh, tell, you know, be verbose, they should only be chatty, they should only tell you anything if something goes wrong, with the exception of if everything goes okay, it should say, okay, or, you know, build successful or whatever. You know, there should be an affirmation message saying that, you know, something happened and everything is okay, But other than that, unless something goes wrong, it should be quiet because you don't want to, you know, for example, um, I don't want it saying how many product IDs came out because, well, frankly, when I'm looking at my tests, I don't care. You know, I just want to know whether or not I pass the condition. I don't want to spend the brain cell on, okay, well, is 250 the right number? Uh, Tools to help make testing easy. (laughs) The de facto framework that everybody uses in the Java world is JUnit. There are a few others, TestNG, etc., but JUnit's what basically everybody uses. (laughs) There's clones in pretty much every language, like NUnit and C Sharp, and here's an example. I know you can't read it there, but that's an example of uh, C Sharp testing with NUnit. TestNG looks a lot like that, and the... Uh, next version of JUnit, JUnit 4, is also going to look a lot like that. (laughs) Um, It's going to remove a few of the restrictions that are currently in uh, uh, JUnit 3. Uh, Namely, it's going to make a lot more use of annotations. (laughs) So, obviously, require Java 5. But (laughs) And for a good list of all the various languages, go to right there. But, um, you know, so it doesn't matter the same basic framework, the same basic framework is there for Ruby, Python, you know, any language you care to name. BB. Uh, What is JUnit? So here we're going to start talking about some of the mechanics of actually doing some of this. JUnit is an open-source Java testing framework used to write and run repeatable tests. It's an instance of the XUnit for architecture for unit testing frameworks. JUnit features include assertions for testing expected results, test uh, fixtures for sharing common test data, test suites for easily organizing and running tests, graphical and textual test runners. JUnit was originally written by Eric Gamma and Kat Beck. You know much of anything in the agile programming world. Those names come up a lot. <laughs> so the simple example. Public class test user extends JUnit Framework test case. (laughs) Public void test set name. User equals new user. Assert equals. So, right there I'm basically asserting that uh, if I get the name from this newly created user, that it's blank. I then set the name on the user. I then say, you know, has the name been set. (laughs) Obviously, it's a slideware, you know, test. It's a simple, stupid little test. But it makes the point in, you know, kind of how do you use it. And that's a complete JUnit test. It uses reflection to uh, notice the fact that it it implements um, test, which test case implements. So you're extending from test case, so you're implicitly implementing test. Uh, And it uses reflection to notice that that uh, public void method starts with the uh, letters TST, uh and it has uh, no uh, parameters being passed in. So the fact that it's public void TST something, no parameters, means that it's a test method using reflection. There are ways that you can override that functionality. Don't. There's no point. Uh, I'll actually talk a little bit about it, but don't. Just use the default functionality. Yes, it does. It calls equals on the object. Um I think you'll get a null pointer exception. If uh, get name returned null.
1: User, were null, you get no permissions. But if users get name, returns null, then I don't think I don't think you get no permissions. I think it would just I think the assertion would just
0: fail. And I, yeah, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure because I've I've run into that before, especially for like checking, you know, the state of a brand new object to make sure that it is in fact empty. <laughs> Um, that I've done that, and I think it does throw you an MPE. But, uh, yeah, in which case you then change your test to check for null. Instead. If you, if you do assert equals null null, then it goes cool. I, I know it, uh, if the first one, um, it either fails or it throws an MPE, either case, it basically fails the test because they're not equal. You know, null is not the same thing as an empty string. <laughs> but it either fails or throws an MPE, but again, the effect on the test is exactly the same.
1: Well, the only difference is uh, JUnit makes a di- differentiation between uh, something that blew up when it shouldn't have and just a condition that failed. Right. If a certain fail, that's... Uh, a failure. It's a failure, as opposed to an error when the exception is thrown, that isn't caught saying, hey, there's a real bug in your code here. You something happened that you really shouldn't happen. Or uh, an assertion is something that you are expecting. Like, yeah, this could possibly happen. As opposed to something that you just weren't expecting at all. Right.
0: And typically what you do here I didn't do it here, but um, at the end of like the test set name, uh you throws exception. Because you know, quite often when you're writing your tests, you know, you can put in things, you know, uh, like you're doing file IO or whatever, and it's gonna throw a checked exception. You don't wanna have to bother with a, you know, try catch nonsense, it's test code. <laughs> and, um, the unit framework, you know, just ca- kinda automatically swallows that exception and does what Patrick was just talking about. It gives you the error, but, you know, it just makes things a little bit easier. And most of the tools, like an idea, for example, there's the unit test plugin, when it creates a test for you it automatically puts the uh, throws exception at the end so you know you don't need the try catch in there you just let it throw the you know the exception right out of the method and the framework will catch that and you know show it as an error <laughs> right there is an ex- there is an exception to that that we'll talk about in just a minute with fail uh, because, like I did before in that Ruby example,
1: you're to make sure that that,
0: yeah. right, see there with the uh, verse where I'm checking to make sure that an exception was thrown. So, if it reaches this except, this line here with the assert false, you know, that assertion fails because it's asserting false um, because it shouldn't have reached this line. It should have thrown an exception. You know, rescue is just catch in Ruby. <laughs> and we'll see that in a minute with JUnit. So, some notes on the simple example all JUnit tests implement the test interface, typically by extending the test class, uh, class, test case class. The testing harness can automatically determine what to run by looking for any method that is public, returns void, and starts the test. <laughs> test conditions are asserted. On the previous screen, for example, we were asserting the equality of two values. Um, in, uh, previous versions of JUnit, the, uh, method name used to be assert. But obviously that ran into problems with JDK 1.4. So they changed the standard assert to be assert true. As opposed to assert equals. Because assert equals only, you know, uh, does it for when you're comparing Uh, you know, equality of two values as opposed to like making sure that the length is greater than zero, for example. So that's when you use assert true. Um, If it makes it through the test without any assertions failing, the test is considered to have passed. Some types of assertions, assert true, assert false. Um, So you're asserting true. uh, As you can see here, uh, almost all of the methods... (laughs) Uh, that you can take a string as the first parameter, in which case if the assert fails, it prints out the string. <laughs> if the test passes, it swallows it. But if the test fails, it prints out the string, so it's really handy. So, you know, like list size greater than 10, but, you know, list size was actually. So if it fails, this is nice because you can have it tell you exactly how big the list was. Uh, assert equals is exactly what we were talking about before. <laughs> assert true or false is more flexible, but it fails. Uh but if it fails, the message isn't very useful unless you provide your own message. So for this first one, it basically just tells you that it fails. It doesn't tell you anything about else other than this line failed. <laughs> for the second, you know, assert true with the list size. It prints out that message. It's much more useful, but of course, when you write the test, you have to remember to provide that message. The assert equals, the second line here, expected 10 actual list size, is not needed. There's no point to the second uh, the second uh, uh, way of doing it because the first one implicitly does the same thing. Assert null, assert not null, assert same, um, and fail. Convenience for certain true, uh, message false. <laughs>
1: um,
0: so, uh, again, what you're doing there is basically saying if it hits this line, you know, that's a problem, like we were doing when we were checking for that an exception was thrown. I uh, used to indicate the point of code should not have been reached, for example, an exception should, not have, should have been thrown. So, uh, example using fail, test bad load, you know, try, user load, bad ID, fail, should have thrown a persistence exception, catch. Yeah. So er- errors and failures, as Patrick was just saying, at the end of testing, JUnit reports three statistics with an implied fourth. Tests run, the number of tests run. Uh, that's not the number of asserts done, it's the number of test methods done. Uh, failures, the number of assert whatever statements that failed, uh, errors, the number of uncaught exceptions, and past, you know, the implicit one, just a little bit of math there. So throwing exceptions. <laughs> the test methods must be public, have no return value or arguments, and begin with test. Uh, it can throw anything, so it's common to have all the tests throw exceptions, so that you don't have to worry about dealing with try catch in your test code, as I was talking about just a minute ago. If an exception is thrown, it's counted as an error as opposed to failure. <laughs> so, running JUnit, there are three basic ways to run a test within your IDE, as a GUI using uh test runner, or as a text, uh, as text using either JUnit text UI test runner or Ant or Maven. Uh, so running JUnit in IDEA, which is my preferred IDE, you just, it's got built-in JUnit functionality and it shows you nice pretty pictures with, you know, little statistical data and all kinds of stuff. Really nice. If it fails, the stack trace has uh, live links in it so you can kind of walk through the stack trace and see exactly where it failed and all that kind of stuff. Just really nice support. Uh, Eclipse has the same kind of support. Uh, pretty much any modern IDE has for support. everybody supports JUnit. Running JUnit as a GUI, I don't know anybody that does that anymore just because your IDE has it. But uh, that's what it looks like inside the GUI. When you read the testing literature, they always talk about coding to the green bar. That bar right there is red because I had two errors. Uh, the moment that everything passes, it's green. Uh, so, coding to the green bar just means coding to make sure that everything passes. And running JUnit as text, you know, there's the form, uh, or you can use ant to do it. Using ant, you can also easily have it do reports using the JUnit report task, which is really nice because it will spit out web pages um, with, you know, just all kinds of nice, uh, information in it, uh, so you can see the fact that you know the whole package structure and everything else. Especially again for large projects, this is wonderful. Especially when you use some, an automated build uh, and testing system, this is great because it spits out a report uh, that you know you can go check. You know, you put it up on your public server. You can FTP it out there or if it's on your build server or whatever. You know, it spits out a web page. Other options for running tests. In IDEA, you can tell it to run tests for the entire package, a particular class, or a particular test method. In ANT, you can use the batch test subtask of the JUnit task to run a specific batch of tests. The JUnit report task is usually used to process the results of a batch test run. Both IDEA and ANT have lots and lots of options for customizing what what tasks are run and how. Uh, Eclipse does too. Um, so you have lots of options (coughs) putting together a test suite so I'll tell you how to do it and then the next slide I'll tell you why you would never ever 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 want to do this but here's how you can Uh, public static test suite if you have that method that signature in your test case it will use that Uh, this way you can specify exactly what tests are run and in what order if suite is in your test class, it, will, it won't use the automatic detection of tests. So it won't use reflection, it'll use that method. Um, there's an alternate uh, idiom for test suite where you can pass it a class instead of a test case, which uses automatic detection of tests in a test case. But it allows you to string together test cases. This can be handy if you have a few test classes that should be run together like for integration testing. That's the one exception to where it may make some sense to use this test suite uh, functionality. Um, For the most part, there are better ways to do it, but that's the one exception to where it kind of makes sense. So why test suite is generally evil? uh, It's duplication. You've already declared the test. Let it do the work of finding and running it. So if you do the suite, you can forget to add your test to the suite. You know, let it figure it out. The order of your tests shouldn't matter, which is another one of the reasons why people sometimes use the suite, is because they want to run their tests in particular order. But if your tests are independent, their order doesn't matter. If they do, if the order of your tests do matter, it's a flashing red light with air raid sirens. The tests are either poorly done, or that they are, what they are testing is poorly designed. They're too highly coupled, for example. If you want to temporarily disable a test, it's easiest just to prepend XX to the name or just do something to break that pattern of having TEST at the front, which both causes it to not be run automatically and it makes it obvious when you look at the test that it's not being run. It's recommended practice to separate the tests that you run all the time, uh, standard unit tests, and those that are too expensive to run all the time, for example, integration tests, by either package or directory structure, <coughs> uh, that way it reduces maintenance by not having to maintain test suites, and makes it clear which tests are for which, which tests are for, and how often they are run. So, running tests automatically, <coughs> whereas running the complete test suite regularly makes sure that the minimum amount of time has passed between the test breaking and discovering that fact. Whereas the, running a complete test suite can take a long time and therefore being impractical to run reg- regularly manually. <clears throat> Whereas people are forgetful, and even when, when it would be quick and easy to run the test, they will forget. <laughs> therefore, be it resolved, a tool such as cruise control should be used to automate the re- execution of regular builds and running of test suites. <clears throat> therefore, be it resolved, when a developer checks in code that breaks the test, notifications should be sent so he or she can fix it quickly. <clears throat> Therefore, be it resolved, if the offending developer does not immediately start fixing the problem, a wedgie should be administered once an hour upon the hour by all the other developers who are being spammed because the tests are broken. (coughs) Uh, You know, because if the tests are broken, the code is broken, you want to get the code fixed as quickly as possible. You want to be developing from a stable code base. So even though that, you know, there's obviously a bit of tongue in cheek there, it was also very serious. <laughs> test granularity. The same principles that apply to coding in general still apply to tests. Each test should be highly focused, testing just one piece of functionality. or it's high cohesion. Each test should be independent of the others without side effects. Low coupling. <laughs> Example. As you add tests to test load, It may be best to get rid of it and split it apart to test load valid, test load invalid, test load database error, etc. So the same kinds of refactorings that you do in your functional code, you would also do with your test code. You you don't want methods that are 3,000 lines long. (laughs) Setting up and tearing down. Before each test method, the protected void setup method is called. Uh, if you don't provide your own, it invokes the one in the superclass, which does nothing. <laughs> but uh, uh, after each te- test method, the protected void teardown method is called. This is extremely useful for doing common configuration that every test in the test case needs. For example, opening and closing a socket connection. Uh, setting up uh, objects that every test is going to need, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Note, because it's run for each test, not the test class, the test method, uh, it's not appropriate for expensive resource setup. For example, connecting to a database, because connecting to a database is fairly expensive. For that, use either the test setup decorator class or a static variable and initialize it in the class's static block. However, make sure that using that resource doesn't cause side effects between tests. You know, so if you're connecting to a database, for example, or a server or whatever, make sure that, uh, you know, one test isn't going to have side effects on what another test might see or do. In the case of, like, working with databases, it's common practice, for example, to use, uh, instead of connecting to your Oracle or MySQL or whatever database, to use uh, uh, hypersonic SQL, HSQL, whatever, Um whatever. Or one of those to where it creates the database in memory, uh, you know, and so it's very fast and you do everything, and when the test is over, it just drops it out of memory. You know, so it makes things very fast, uh, very nice for that. If you're using something like Hibernate, it makes it really nice because you don't have to change your SQL between Oracle and, you know, HSQL. You know, there's some techniques to make things a lot faster and easier. Yeah, DBUnit is great for doing that kind of thing. Uh, it'll create your database, it'll populate your database, it'll do a lot of that kind of stuff for you with a lot of stuff. He uses it all the time. Used to?
1: Yeah. It, it worked well, for, it worked well for, for the things that it provided. The problem that I ran into it, they may have fixed this by now, but the problem that I ran into it is that it wouldn't be certain role in certain fields. Which is kind of a deal breaker. So, mm. what I ended up doing for... Uh, Um,
0: we'll probably we might talk about it kind of after the presentation because it's a little bit of off topic. But I know like uh, Ruby on Rails has a similar kind of thing to where you can set up a, a configuration file and it'll automatically populate the database for you and, you know, it makes it easy for you to check against those values and that kind of stuff. So... Um, yeah, DB unit is a common way of doing it, the uh, SQL task for ant is another common way. Or, of course, you can do it in your code. <laughs> uh, here's just some tools for running tests. Uh, some of my favorites are no unit, which uh, shows a report of what methods are actually tested by reading your bytecode. So, it looks in the bytecode for your tests, and by looking at the bytecode, it can see whether or not your by- your test is actually calling these other methods that are in your classes and it can tell you whether or not you're even trying to invoke you know all your methods and you can do things like you can say only check for public methods for example <coughs> you know because don't bother trying to unit test private methods uh, perf, uh, this is great um, again ask Patrick it lets you do everything from uh, perform- performance testing Making sure the test returns in a specific amount of time to load testing, uh, which is one of the big things that we're using it for right now. Running a test in X threads Y times, which can also be very handy for finding intermittent problems. For example, race conditions. Uh, Because as everybody knows, it's done much in the way of thread programming. Those are a real pain in the butt to find. (laughs) Um, JSC unit, if you do any swing programming. Uh, Provides some nice tools for making it almost reasonable, almost reasonable, to test swing code. <laughs> um, there are certain techniques that uh, help with that, uh, but view technology is kind of inherently hard to test in an automated way, uh, but that certainly makes it a lot easier. Uh, same thing with uh, HTTP unit provides some nice tools to make it almost reasonable to test web code. Uh, struts test case provides a mock of Struts that can be run outside of the Servlet container for testing, so your unit tests don't have to head up against you know a Tomcat server. Uh, Cactus, the best way to test J2EE, uh, particularly EJBs, it's ridiculously complicated, but that's because testing code in J2EE containers is very complex. An alternative is to use Mach EJB. It's best having to avoid this altogether by using dependency injection. So if your services and the like are done as Pojos, plain old Java objects, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're uh silly and writing uh EJBs themselves, then um you have to worry about it. There's much better solutions. Uh naming conventions. You can name your test cases anything you like, but recommended practices for pending test before the names of the classes you're testing. For example, test customer DAO. Another common, uh, naming convention is like DAO, our, uh, customer DAO tests. Um, the Spring team, for example, uses that convention. You usually just, you know, put test somewhere in there and, uh, just be consistent. As long as you're consistent, you're cool. But uh, like on my team, that's the convention we use. Test names should reflect what it is that uh, they are testing, obviously. But what does that mean? <laughs> For example, test something, where XXX is the method being tested. This is nice because it makes it obvious what method is being tested and works well with tools. For example, an idea with a unit test plugin. <laughs> you know, I've got you know user and I've got the method load. I can hit, uh, control shift T, and it'll automatically create a test load method for me with all this stuff. And, you know, if I'm in my test, I can hit the control shift T again, it'll bring me back to user test, you know, because it's got that little pattern in the name that it can use for moving back and forth. Um, and so it just makes it really nice, you know, tool support. <laughs> but, or test xx, where xx is not a method name, this is new when testing several methods together or when it takes multiple tests to run a test method, like the test load example being broken apart earlier. You know, obviously if we, you know, refactor that into the other names, you know, we don't have methods with those same names, so, you know, it would break that pattern. Showing test names, tools like test docs uh, can be used to uh, create pretty names from test cases. <laughs> um, so example, you know, test foo extends test case, test is a singleton, test a really long name is a good thing. Uh, as people anybody that's ever taken a look at my code, I do write method names this long. Um, because you know descriptive is better. You know, there's we're not writing to 4K anymore. Uh so that generates, if you run it through uh, test docs, you know, Foo is a singleton, a really long name is a good thing. You know, so it just kind of pretties it up and encourages you as a developer. You can run reports, you know, like for the entire thing, and you can run a report, and it just looks more English-like. Uh Pretty is good. Uh There are plugins for IDEs, for IDEs like Idea that will do the same thing when they display tests. Anyway, testing public-private code. This is a common uh, question with like JUnit because usually you're testing your public methods off of a class because that is essentially your published API. But sometimes you want to be able to um, test the private or protected methods of that class. <laughs> For protected code, you can override the class in your test. So, you know, class A uh, protected int m return 2. Class B extends A. Uh, I mean, obviously using uh, Java 5. Uh, int public int m returns super m. Uh, as those of uh, you that know the JLS you know, you can always make something more visible in a uh, subclass. You can never make it less visible, but you can always make it more visible. So what I'm basically doing is in B, M is now public instead of private, and so from my test case I can call it. And of course B can be an um, inner class inside my test case. So I don't need another Java file for it. For private and protected code, you can use reflection. <coughs> uh, so you have test A private int M. Uh, class <coughs> my test case extends test case. Uh, public void test M throws exception and I'm just using reflection to get a hold of it because of course in Java visibility is a suggestion <coughs> um, with reflection you can always get around it um, you know right there with the set accessible true I just made it so I can get to that method regardless of the fact that it says it's private Uh, which is one of the reasons why I kind of laugh whenever people talk about, well, like in Perl, you know, everything is essentially public. It's like, yeah, true. So is it in Java too? You know, you can always get to it. Um, it. The visibility is more of a, please don't go here. You know, it's kind of like closing the door to your house, kind of thing. <laughs> um, as opposed to putting locks on the door, and you can't put locks on the door of Java uh common code there's nothing that says that you have to extend directly from the test case class if you have a number of test cases that require common setup and utility methods create an abstract class that extends from test case that your classes can extend from uh, i use that quite extensively in uh in my project uh because you know i'm doing a bunch of spring stuff and there's you know, i have to i uh, create the bean factory and all this stuff Every single test case needs to do it, so I have a, a base, uh, you know, Titan test case class. Titan's the name of the project um, that it, all my test cases extend from, and its setup method creates the bean factory and everything else that every test case is going to need. So my the classes, the test cases that I write don't need to you know worry about it; so it's automatically taken care of for them. So, what is test-driven development? (laughs) This is where we start talking about how do you make sure that you actually do have tests for everything. Uh, We start by writing some client code as though the code we wanted to develop already existed. That's important. As though the code that we want does not yet exist. (laughs) Uh, And had been written purely to make our life as easy as it could possibly be. Again. The virtues of a programmer is laziness. Does everybody know the three virtues of a programmer? I keep referring to that. Larry Wall? Yes. (laughs) Laziness, hubris, and impatience are the three virtues of a programmer. Uh, As anybody that's read the Camel Book, uh, the Pearl Bible uh, by Larry Wall knows. uh, Because... Lazy, we should want the computer to do as much work for us as possible. <laughs> Impatient, you know, we want the computer to be as fast as possible. You know, dang, this is taking too long. <laughs> and hubris, because we don't want anybody to see crap code coming from us. <laughs> uh, so the, the three virtues of a programmer are laziness, impatience, and hubris. And um, uh, so, we write the, uh, some client code, client code, you can read test code, but all the test is, is it's really just a client of the API that we're about to write. Uh, this is a tremendously liberating thing to do. By writing a model client for our code, the test is just a model client. In the form of a test, we can define programmatically what the most suitable API is for our needs. So, some principles of test-driven development. (laughs) Main ideas. When you're done, you're done. You know, because uh, you have these tests and you define everything that it needs to do, you know that once those tests pass, you're done. There's no longer any question about it. When the tests pass, you're done. You can just walk away. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) It really, really is. And the other idea is to do as little work as possible. (laughs) Laziness. Um, This, you know, the doing as little work as possible and the when you're done, you're done are actually harder to get used to than you would expect. And when I go through an example, you'll see why. Uh, But it's tremendously liberating. And once you get used to that pattern... It's really annoying and it freaks you out when you don't have tests for what you're writing. It, you start to feel dirty. <laughs> it's really, really annoying. Uh, some, uh, corollaries. By having tests that demonstrate that things work, you know when you're done. Assume that the code you should write should have APIs that exist to make your life easier. You know, if you're writing an API, your job is to make the clients calls as easy as possible you're the client so you know make it as easy as possible <laughs> by having tests you can refactor things to make them even simpler and be assured of the safety of doing so because you know that as long as you make when you make those changes if the tests still pass you're golden if the test breaks oops <coughs> doing as little work as possible baby steps baby steps Bill Murray from what about Bob <laughs> Anybody that's seen that movie? That was one of the best movies Bill Murray ever did. <laughs> um, <clears throat> sample work list. So, you know, before we did, like, our requirements document, this is the same kind of thing. I'm basically defining, you know, essentially these are the tests that I'm going to need to write in order to prove, in order to write my function. So before I've written a line of code, I wrote up you know, a quick little li- you know, list of these are the things that it needs to do that I need to verify. So I'm just going to kind of run through it. You can uh, go through it a little bit slower later, but the first item that I need is a way to load users. What's the simplest way that I can ask a user to load? Well, first thing that comes to mind is user load. So let's write a test uh, to see how well that would work. So there's the test. Since user load hasn't been written yet, this won't even compile. Remember when I wrote that list, I had written no code. Compiling, the fastest way to get this to at least compile, because again, we're lazy. Add this to the user class, public void load. Woohoo! It compiles. There. <laughs> first item on our list is done. Writing a te- the test <clears throat> uh, for the second item, which the second item was username for uh, user 999 is jmore. So, uh, test load throws exception. And I set the model ID in my test to 999. I assert that, uh, right there, uh, before I've called load, that it does not yet equal jmore. I call load, and I want to make sure that it says jmore now. The test fails. <laughs> uh, what's the fastest way to get the, a working test? Set username jmore. The test passes. We're done. Seriously. Walk away. For that test, you're done. So now, first name for user 999 is Jim. You know, let's add, bummer, it failed. First name, yay, it passes now. Username for user 9998 is Esmore. Uh, There's the test. When it runs, it fails. So, you know, there. Yay, all tests pass. What if the user doesn't exist? <laughs> um, so there's my test and there's the fail uh, technique I was talking about before. When it runs, it fails because it doesn't throw that exception currently. There's the code <clears> through a new illegal exception. There's a problem loading user. Yay, all tests passed now. Was there a problem loading? <laughs> Let's say that a legal exception should be, also be used if there's a problem loading. What could go wrong while loading? Well, the database or network could be down. Shoot. We need to make sure that the values are coming from the database. Better add that to the list. <laughs> Load values from the database. <laughs> so there, you know, we start loading the values from the database. We catch the SQL exception. We th- uh, throw the illegal state exception. You know, close all open resources. Ouch. That was a lot of work between uh, runs of the test. Uh, fortunately, all tests that we had before still pass. That's the important line because we didn't write a whole bunch of stuff here without stuff that you know already kind of proves that we were get, you know, thinking right about how to populate the objects, how to do all this stuff. So even be, be, though before, it looks like we we're kind of being you know, ridiculously baby steps. There's a reason to it there's a pattern the fact that that you know this ouch there's a lot of work between runs of tests that's serious <clears throat> you know and again once you get into that pattern if you spend more than 5 minutes working on a piece of code without running tests in between it starts to hurt
1: <clears throat>
0: because you get really used to it's kind of pavlovian <laughs> you start really depending upon seeing that green <clears throat> um and so, you know, and again, uh, the reason why is because the longer that you're spending between runs of tests, the more time that you have to put in bugs, to put in screw-ups. I hate bugs. I hate screw-ups. I do them, I hate them. So, you know, this just makes sure that I don't do it. So, everything checked off. <clears throat> Finished! Woo-hoo! Yep, there it is. <laughs> some principles of test-driven design uh, review. When you're done, you're done. You know, the fact that we did all that means that we didn't. there were lots of other things to where if we had tried to just write it without some of these tests backing us up, <laughs> it would have been very easy to essentially over-design that method to try to make it do more than it needed to do. Here, you know... When all those tests pass, you're done. Just walk away. You're you're done. Because you had your requirements. It now matches the requirements. Do as little work as possible. By having tests to demonstrate that things work, you know when you're done. Assume that code you write should have APIs that exist to make your life easier, which was one of the things that it was doing before. Like, as we went through and we started thinking about, oh, well, what if the database connection fails with that SQL exception? We essentially started to redefine our API. Well, it should throw any illegal state exception rather than a SQL exception. <laughs> by writing the test first, you start to you know, think about what would be the easiest way to consume this API. <clears throat> Results. When you're done, you've got code that you know works. <laughs> An API that is easy to use since it was designed by actually being used. Highly cohesive, loosely coupled components. Writing tests for anything else is too hard, and since the point is to do things the easiest way possible, this happens naturally. More time, since you're not over-designing. If it isn't needed to make a test pass, why write it? And not under-designing. You still have to make sure that all the tests pass. When you're done, you've got examples of how the code is meant to be used. Developers like to see code examples for an API. I know I sure do. Uh, You also know the documentation is accurate. As opposed to, you know, Java docs or, you know, comments in the code to where as the code, you know, is maintained and the rest. How many times have you read Java docs or the like to where it don't match what it actually does anymore? (laughs) It's impossible when the documentation is executable. Because if it breaks, you know, (laughs) documentation on what kinds of problems you were trying to solve when you wrote the code, which also nicely solves the, what the heck was I thinking when I wrote this problem? (laughs) Because you can see essentially your thought process on this is how I solved the problem. (laughs) This is what I was thinking of. A suite of regression tests, making maintenance much easier since you can make changes without fear. And freedom to try things since changes are made in small increments and there are tests to make sure that nothing breaks. You refactor, know, refactoring and re you can do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, and if everything still passes, you're good. Uh, patterns and testing, just gonna kind of run through these. If a test case is too, getting too big, breaking into smaller, more easily maintained tests. Mock objects, this is very important. If something is too expensive or unreliable to test with, for example, a database or other network resource, then mocking it out can improve speed and reliability. To guard against relying too much on the mock, make sure it can easily be switched out with the real thing. So, for example, for your unit tests, you'll often use mock objects. For integration tests, you'll actually test against the real thing. (laughs) Uh, An important thing to note with mock objects is new testers will often end up testing the mock, which is wrong. You know, you're testing your code. The mock is just kind of there to kind of fill in the spaces. (laughs) Um, So, that's something that's very easy to do until you learn not to. You know, basically what's happening is you're trying to test too much. You're doing integration tests instead of unit tests. Uh, Log string, I use this from time to time. If you need to make sure that a certain sequence is called in a particular order, depending on the fact that a call was made to a common string, then uh, compare that string to what's expected. Crash test dummy, if you want to test that your code reacts appropriately to a condition that you can't easily reproduce, for example database crash network failure etc <laughs> um i've actually done and a few other people i've talked to have also done you know you want to test the, the network failure <clears throat> before you know like having a crash test dummy i've actually like yanked the network wire out of the wall <laughs> you know what happens when you lose network connectivity <laughs> uh but if you create a, te- uh, a mock that artificially creates you know an io exception or whatever you don't have to actually, every time you run the test, you can go wire out of the wall. Uh, for example, test the screen that loads a user by testing with a version of user that throws a legal state exception every time it's called. What about things that are hard to test? Some things that are traditionally hard to test are GUIs. I talked about that earlier. Aces and other external services, things that need to run in containers, Uh, the primary example being EJBs. Uh, Use a combination of separation of concerns and mock objects. It's not hard to do this. And when it really is hard, it's almost always an indication that your object is doing too much. In other words, low cohesion. Um, (coughs) Some resources. The FAQ is excellent for uh, JUnit. It really does answer pretty much any question about JUnit itself that you're likely to come across. an excellent fact. There are a lot of great resources, extensions, articles, use cases, etc. referenced from the JUnit site. A great book about JUnit, a number of its extensions. Ant and Tim Moore's uh, Java Extreme Programming Cookbook from O'Reilly. Um, JUnit, Test Infected, you know, just lots and lots of stuff. <laughs> so, questions and answers. Any questions? I ran through a ton of stuff right there. Um, there's a number of easy way to do that. Ways to do that. The most common way is you put them in a separate directory structure. So you know, um, another way to do that is if you're using you know like test class name or you know use a naming convention. <coughs> um, assuming you use Ant to like put together your jar, the um, your File set options allow you to do an include or exclude, so you can say like exclude test star.
1: So, you never have unit test code in the same file? file.
0: Um, I've seen that and that's generally regarded as as a bad practice. Way that that's usually done because people want to use uh, package protection for some stuff instead of like private or protected in order to be able to get to that. Or even like if they do protected, if you're in the same package, you can still get to protected stuff. Um, and so they like to put, um, I personally I consider package protection to be a bug in the JLS. Java language specification, but that's personal opinion. Um, so people, uh, people who want to take advantage of essentially that front friend functionality from like C++, uh, they'll put it in a different directory structure, but the same cl- uh, package structure. So it'll be like in a uh, you know you'll have source and say like main, and a sister to main would be test. And then you'll have your package structure underneath of that, and you know so that's another way to do it. Um, at first, people were putting in the um, uh, them into the same directory structure, but uh, that quickly became a uh, bad practice. You know, people recognize that as something that you just don't want to do, <laughs> primarily because of like packaging issues. Anything else? Uh, the way that we do it is, uh, for example, uh, a, uh, one of our package, uh, package structure is like AST dot, uh, AST dot Titan dot, uh, model. Uh, the, uh, companion test package for that would be test dot AST dot, uh, business dot model or whatever, titan.model. Yeah, other, and other people do it differently, but, um, you know, again, you can put it into the same package structure, just in a different directory. is so what I do. I have yeah.
1: the same package structure, but, but I have a directory for the regular source file, and then another directory just for the source files. So that way, when I'm compiling, if I'm just doing a build, then the test classes don't even to get compiled. I'm just telling it compile with this directory, build the jar file. Exactly. So, so, so that makes that part easy. And uh, when I do run the tests, I compile stuff in the main directory first, and then I go and compile all the tests.
0: Anything else? Any questions about like the test-driven methodology? You know, why you would do that, or? <coughs>
1: you talk about the, an automated build tool mm-hmm. to informing the person who wrote something? Um, does that mean you have to run the whole test
0: suite for every check in? So what happens if a bunch of people check in? Yes and no. Uh, for example, what uh, like cruise control, you can configure it to however you want it to work. It's extremely flexible. But a common thing, for example, to set up Chris Control, and again, there are other tools that do it, um, is to like, you know, it watches the repository to see if there are any check ins, and then it waits for like 10 minutes of silence. Um, and can't
1: know who wrote
0: Yeah, it can, because of course your source code control system does know who, you know, who checked this code in. Um, and so, it's, uh, it knows the fact that it ran everything from like revision 2317 to you know <clears throat> 2410 you know that's all the new stuff and uh, um, it says well the last time I, I ran my tests and everything passed at
1: 2317
0: <clears throat> um, and now at 2410 they don't pass anymore somewhere inside there obviously something broke and it it uh, If there is only one person that did something, it can send an email off to just that one person. Typically, you set it up to spam the team because it's the team's responsibility to make sure it's fixed. And if it's like me that broke it, you know, like, you know, that wedgie comment that was made before, you know, you're going to get the team on your case to make sure that it gets fixed. (coughs) So, that answer your question? Anything else? There's nothing else and thank you everybody. Thank
1: you very much.